how young children fare in the early years of schooling has a significant impact on their subsequent experiences of education. This matters not only in terms of formal measures of achievement, such as tests or exam results, but also in their sense of connection to and engagement with education. Yet children do not begin school with the same opportunities, and their social, cultural and family contexts vary enormously. How schools and the wider society can effectively address patterns and experiences of social inequality and educational disadvantage is a persistent challenge for everyone involved teachers, policymakers, politicians, families, and communities. The Smith family is one organisation that has a long history of active involvement in addressing these matters, in addressing educational disadvantage and in providing support for young people and their families to make the most out of schooling. I'm Professor Julia McLeod, the Deputy Director of the Melbourne Social Equity Institute. This is All Being Equal. Today, we are talking about how communities and organisations can address the educational disadvantages facing many young people today. I'm speaking with Anne Hampshire, who is Head of Research and Advocacy with the Smith family. We're talking about a recent report on a program designed to improve young children's numeracy. Called the Let's Count program, this initiative involves supporting parents to assist their children in gaining and enhancing their numeracy skills and confidence. But before we talk about this, perhaps Anne, you'd like to say something about the Smith family's aims and also its connection to the University of Melbourne. Julie, the Smith Family is a national charity, a national organisation, and we work in 94 communities uh, across Australia. And our sole focus is on supporting disadvantaged children's long-term participation in education. So from where I sit, that's a fantastic uh, goal, and it's a terrific partnership that we've got with the University of Melbourne. And why I think it's a particularly interesting partnership is what we hold in common. So both of our organisations, long-standing in the community, and we both have a focus on education, obviously, but also excellence and equity and a really strong commitment to research. So there's a lot of relationship uh, value that we share. And so over the last three years, we've had a, a long partnership with the University of Melbourne, really on that shared goal of how can we improve education? How can it be high quality education? And really, in particular, how can we narrow the, the gap between young people who come from affluent backgrounds and those who, who don't? Yes, it's, um, it is, as you say, a, a shared goal of the, the university, in particular of the Melbourne Social Equity Institute, and, and in, in partnership with um, the Smith family. And as you say, those challenges of how to work, address equity and still seek excellence and, and to do that in a research-based and sort of evidence-based way. Perhaps, Anne, given the, uh, the range of your experience, what do you see as some of the most pre pressing challenges in responding to educational disadvantage today from the Smith family's perspective? I think, Julie, if we start with the public's perception, that's a, an important consideration because I think perhaps not everyone understands that we have this gap in Australia, that children from disadvantaged backgrounds generally as a group start behind. So from the very first day at school, they're behind their more affluent peers. And that gap continues, continues through primary school and secondary school and then what they do when they leave school. And there's a whole range of complex reasons why that happens. And we might talk about a few of those more. So I think a starting point for us as a society is really knowing that there is this equity gap and being concerned about it, knowing why it matters. 
not only for those young people who are not achieving educationally, but also for the nation as a whole. And then collectively having the will, both at a policy level, but also at a program level and in partnership with governments and universities and business and not-for-profits and schools to really do something about it. So that's one of the big picture challenges, I think. At a quite micro level, if we go completely the other way, if we think about some of the many, many families that the Smith family supports every day, the daily grind of financial disadvantage is really hard. So not having enough for really basic things in terms of an educational context like books, like having connection to um, the internet at home, like having opportunities like school excursions and very basic things like school uniforms. And then if we look more broadly, not having an experience within the family of what does senior secondary school look like, Um, feeling perhaps not having a parent who's confident about engaging in the school system. It can be a bit scary at times for disadvantaged parents. And then if we take the further step, you know, how does a family who's had no experience of a university, let alone a university like Melbourne, really try to help steer their young the young person to that sort of goal. So there's sort of two opposite ends of the spectrum, if you like. The big public policy conversation at a community level, knowing there's an issue, knowing why that matters, and then at a micro level, how it might be for a disadvantaged young person within the context of a very loving but financially disadvantaged family. Yes, I think you've touched on some of the most important elements of that because it is a both a, a multifaceted problem requiring multifaceted approaches and that, uh, that as you say, the, the structural and the material circumstances of many of disadvantaged young people, but also those, um, what a lot, lot of research is talking about at the moment, the, the sort of aspirations. How do you actually encourage aspirations and a sense of possibility in young people? Uh, Julie, I think the aspirations is a really interesting area because sometimes people talk about a disparity or a poverty of aspiration within disadvantaged Mm -hmm. families and communities. And then I think sometimes, both from our practical experience of the Smith family and perhaps from some of the UK research, it's possibly not so much a poverty of aspiration, but a poverty of opportunity. And so for many of the families who we work with, they are desperately wanting their child to do so well at, at school and to do so well at university particularly, for example, the many families from refugee backgrounds who we support. Uh, But what they lack is not so much the aspiration but the opportunity and the way of thinking through how do I support my child to get from where they are now to where they might want to be. And so sometimes I think what we need to do is, is shape a different conversation because if you think there's a poverty of aspirations, you might do one thing. If you think there's a poverty of opportunities, you might do something different. I think that's a very valuable distinction and because I have some of the aspirational lit- literature on aspirations comes from a, a good place in a way but actually can end up reproducing some deficit accounts as the family or the children are at fault. Yes. Whereas if we think about uh, a poverty of opportunity, we our focus becomes much more on sort of structural and resource issues mm. but also on how you cultivate that, uh, the, the know-how and the knowledge for people to navigate. That's right. I think the navigation is incredibly important. Um, if you think of some of the families we work with who might not have, certainly might not have completed Year 12 and definitely wouldn't have gone to university, they might have been educated in a different country. Um, some of our families, certainly from refugee backgrounds, 
wouldn't have gone to formal schooling at all. How do you help in a very 21st century Australian context for them to support their child to navigate the system, to think about where do they go from where they currently are to where they might want to be? Mm-hmm. And so we run a whole lot of um, mentoring opportunities, including um, through some of our university partners, but things like an a program we run called iTrack, which is an online mentoring program, which connects young people in years 8, 9, 10, 11 with a, a mentor in the area that they might be interested in pursuing. And they connect online in a safe environment once a week over an 18-week period, not to be directive about, well, here's how you get from A to B, but to really help develop within that young person the, the possibilities and how they might tr- try and think about navigating that complex system. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's uh, interesting about uh, bringing into focus the importance of those social relationships, Mm -hmm. peer relationships, but also um, that intergenerational dynamic. That's right. And networks beyond the family. Mm. And so connecting young people to a range of of adults outside the family, supporting what the family is is hoping to achieve. You know, if we think of all of the literature, the social capital literature, how do people like us, Julie, get jobs? Um, How do we hear about jobs? How do we have mentors who might say, well, Julie, have you thought about going for this role or I could see you in this direction, et cetera, et cetera? They are the networks that we're trying to foster and create for some of the young people who we work with who wouldn't naturally have them in in their natural cycle. And networks. So that um, in some ways connects to the Let's Count program that you've just, or the report on which you've just Mm. released, which combines a number of those aspects. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that program and its Mm. rationale. Mm. So, Julie, after 2007, the release of the Australian Early Development Census, which looked at how were children across the country faring against five areas, five important areas in the first year of school. I actually think it's one of a terrific achievement as a nation that almost all of children in their first year of school from 2006 have actually had that um, applied to them at at three-year periods. So the data in 2007 showed that there were significant numbers of children, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds, who were not doing well at the first year of school including in key areas like literacy and mathematics. And so we particularly focused in the mathematics area. So one in four children in our most disadvantaged communities didn't have the maths ready to thrive at school. And so we at the Smith family thought that's clearly an issue and had a look around for, well, what programs existed to help foster early mathematics in the period prior to school and found that there was almost very little. So we did a literature review and then we worked in partnership with two terrific academics, um, Bob Perry, Professor Bob Perry and Professor Andrew Vassoni, to develop the Let's Count program. And in some ways, Julie, it's probably the simplest program imaginable, but I think some of our best programs often are. What it does is it draws on the literature which says if you want to foster the early mathematics skills of children, all children, you have to foster an engagement in in them of mathematics, a love of learning, a curiosity. They have to be able to find maths in the everyday. Julie, I'm a former maths teacher. It's Uh, not about sitting down and doing an algebra (laughs) or, you know, a highly complex geometry exercise. It's helping children to notice, explore and talk about maths in the everyday, in these early years, which will help them develop 
both the skills in mathematics, but really importantly, the dispositions, the attitudes to mathematics, which will set them up uh, going forward. So the Let's Count program provides a two-day training for early years educators in this whole idea of helping children develop early mathematics skills. It then provides resources so that those early years educators can work with parents, because really what we want to do, particularly through Let's Count, is support parents from disadvantaged backgrounds to help their child develop their early mathematics ability. So those parents become much more confident, much more able to engage the children in their care in early mathematics. So since 2007, we designed the program, we piloted it, we then scaled it up and did a terrific evaluation, a three-year evaluation, and it is a really terrific partnership because the Origin Energy Foundation, a philanthropic organisation, paid for that evaluation, paid for us to scale up the program. And the evaluation clearly shows, and that report that we just talked about clearly shows that the children who participated over a 12-month period were far more skillful in their mathematics than similar children, but also really importantly, they were very engaged in mathematics, so they had a very positive disposition. And I think if we want to set up children in a mathematical space, they have to see maths as interesting, useful and fun, and that's exactly what Let's Count does. That um, uh, phrase you used of developing or cultivating a positive disposition, I think, is so crucial, not only in towards numeracy in mathematics, in but across the learning. curriculum. That's yeah. right. That's right. And I think what was interesting, whilst our primary focus was on improving children's mathematical disposition, we also found, and as I say, as a former maths teacher, I already knew this before we began, that many parents just have a horror of mathematics. And so that can really wash off on their children as if it's, you know, in the genes. And similarly, many early years educators who are not specialist trained mathematics teachers also felt uncomfortable about how they cultivated the maths skills of the children in their care. And so what Let's Count did was support the educators but also supported the parents. So it's all, you know, everybody gained with the ultimate impact being on the child. Yeah. I think, um, as you said earlier, it's, it's a simple model in some ways, but an enormously effective one, possibly because of its simplicity. But you can immediately see uh, lots of ways in which can have applications beyond this specific, well, beyond even working specifically with disadvantaged young children and their families, but further afield. That's right. I think one of the interesting things we've done is work with some of our many corporate partners who, you know, clearly are not from disadvantaged backgrounds, their workforce, so organisations like Origin Energy and PwC, and we've actually done a shortened version of the Let's Count program an hour, over an hour over a lunchtime because many of their, their, many of their staff are parents. They have young children and equally they're not quite sure about how they develop early mathematics. It's a little bit different from literacy because people go, oh, there's a book. Okay, I know what to do in, in the reading space more than I do it in the math space. And the maths we're talking about, Julie, what's really important is it's not, it's not about counting, even though the program's called Let's Count. It's about shapes. It's about measurement. It's about, you know, who's taller, who's shorter, all those sorts of things. And there are just so many opportunities. You know, if you're cooking, how many eggs, what is it weighing, who's the tallest child in the house, all those sorts of things. So, And being very practical. One of the things I most like about Let's Count, I think, is the example of the washing. You know, I don't know about your household. I've got a house which, you know, unmatched socks are, are, are a phenomenon. Well, in one of the things you can do with Let's Count is when you're bringing in the washing, 
talk with your child about matching the socks because that's a pair and that's matching and matching common and, elements and, and, and patterns yeah. and all those yep. things and that's a mathematical exercise. Yeah. So just really helping parents and then children to see, talk about, explore maths in the everyday. Yes, that's right. So demystifying it to it and also exactly. seeing its practical exactly. benefits. That's right. That's terrific. Um, Perhaps uh, you could tell us, so this has been enormously successful and it's ongoing and we were delighted at the University of Melbourne to be part of uh, launching that evaluation Mm. a few weeks ago. Now It was was a fabulous event. Um, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about some of the other projects or programs Mm. you've got underway at the moment. Mm. And thank you so much for for being part of that launch. It was really a, a terrific thing. So one of the big initiatives that the Smith family has is our Learning for Life scholarship. And... This is a scholarship which can begin in the very first year of school and can, in fact, continue all the way through to tertiary. And what's terrific is we've currently got, I think, 27 young people on a Learning for Life tertiary scholarship here at Melbourne University. And a couple of those are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, which is just wonderful. Um, So we've got this Learning for Life scholarship program and it can... It really is aimed at supporting young people's long-term participation in education. It's got three components. It, first of all, is a financial contribution. It's pretty modest. So we talked previously about the fact that you know some of our uh, families can't afford excursions or, or uniforms or whatever. There's a modest component financially. The second component is a relationship with the Learning for Life program coordinator. So really helping the student but also the family on anything education-related that might be impacting on their child's performance. So, you know, are there things that that we can encourage them to do extra? Are there things that are stopping them getting to school? All those sorts of things, whatever it might be. And then thirdly, we also have a series of shorter-term programs like the iTrack Mentoring Program, for example, which kick in at different times depending on what age a young person is. And so in combination, we think the small modest contribution of finance, the relationship with the Learning for Life program coordinator and then the access to these programs in the long term is going to help a lot more children across Australia achieve educationally. Now currently we've got 34,000 young people on a Learning for Life scholarship which is you know really thanks to so many of our donors across the country, uh, individual Australians and corporates and, and organisations like university. And what we're trying to achieve, the three outcomes that we measure, and we're, we're very focused on measuring, you know, what sort of, what difference are we making? We're focusing on school attendance, so really trying to get young people attending at very high levels, then completing year 12. And then we're interested in well, what happens to young people once they leave the program? Are they in work? Are they in study? What are they doing? And so we've got a strong research base that underpins all of those programs. So that's a pretty big initiative that we've got on. But, you know, the sorts of families we're working with, Julie, are highly disadvantaged. So it's unlikely that a short-term program, no matter how good it is, is going to make the difference. So it's being there when the family needs um, support and all focused around that child's educational participation. Yes, that's a, an amazing number of uh, young people and families who are benefiting from that contribution from the Smith family. And, and I was also thinking about for um, individuals and, and families and communities donating as well and giving you can see how small amounts can actually make huge differences in people's lives. That's right. The the contribution, the financial contribution in primary school is $400 a year to the family. Mm. 
But that can make, you know, it's small and modest from our perspective, but it can make a sort of a difference. But then that also gives access to that important relationship. And I think the relationship with our program coordinator is really the glue that keeps that relationship going. One of the things we are particularly um, interested in at the Smith family is maintaining those long-term relationships. So uh, the students that we have in the program in secondary school, over half of them have been with us for five years. Now, these are highly disadvantaged, highly mobile students. I think there must be something pretty magical happening between the relationship that is developed between the family and our program coordinator to keep them engaged in the program over that, that long period of time. I think that's absolutely right. And also just you can imagine for, for, for young children and going through high school, being recognised and being given something as a way of um, affirming their aspirations, supporting the family. So that must all help in that longer-term engagement. It, it's really interesting, that dimension, Julie, because it's deliberately called a scholarship. So it's not, a, not in any way, shape or form a welfare payment. It's not awarded on academic merit. So it's awarded on the basis of financial disadvantage and being in one of the 94 disadvantaged communities that we work in, but also that the parent and the family, in partnership with ourselves, agree that we're going to work together to help that child achieve educationally. And so I think that makes a difference for the family that it's not a welfare benefit, that it's a scholarship. And I think the other interesting thing from the young person's perspective is most of these individual students have a sponsor, so someone who donates that small amount of money on an annual basis. And a couple of times a year or more, depending on the sponsor, they can interact anonymously. And so there can be an exchange of encouragement from the sponsor um, to that student. And particularly with our older students, particularly as they start to complete Year 12 and go on to university, many of them talk about how blown away they are by the fact that someone who doesn't know them, someone who never meets them, the stranger, if you like, is believing in them, investing in them, and occasionally giving them just the word that helps them go, okay, I can do this. Might be feeling tough, but good on, I can do it. So all of those sort of mentoring, coaching, all of those sorts of other people in their life um, working together around them, I think does make a difference. Yeah. I think many of us have memories of how um, a teacher or an older person said something that is, you know, just stayed with us, even though as you get older, you realise in the course of their day, the teacher may not have that's even right. realised they'd said something that was actually quite, oh, me, yeah, I can do that. that that's right. And Yes. The recognition of that's a possibility for yeah. someone like me. me. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, coming here today, I was thinking about the 27 Learning for Life tertiary scholarship holders here at Melbourne University as I stepped on the campus thinking, wow. Yeah. And a number of them, interestingly, are from regional Victoria. So from, you know, smaller communities and how even a bigger wow that might be stepping on, you know, what is, you know, hallowed ground in many yes. ways. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Indeed. <laughs> and so, again, I suppose emphasising the importance of that ongoing relationship between the sponsor, well, not just the sponsor, but the mentor within That's the right. Smith Family Organisation. Well, Anne, that's a, a fairly impressive um, suite of programs the Smith family's involved in and, and yourself having a, in your role as research and advocacy manager. It must be both um, demanding and an incredibly stimulating and rewarding role. You've, you've nailed those three words um, beautifully, Julie. It, it's a complete honour um, to 
to look, be involved in the Smith family. Uh, that might sound corny, but it's so genuinely felt. It, it's an organisation, you know, as a former teacher, being concerned about education. That's our sole focus, so that's a delight. But I think what really is, uh, even in addition to that, is the fact that as an organisation we're investing significantly in research and making sure that the programs that we do are making the difference that we want them to. Um, sometimes not everything we do works. So how do we tweak it? How do we use data to inform practice? And so it's a it's an enormous honour to be working in an organisation where there's a culture of we are here for young people and supporting them. Um, and we've got some fantastic partnerships across the country. We couldn't do what we do without that. We've got eight thousand volunteers working in our program space, for example. So. It really is, I think, for, for us who work at the Smith family and who are involved in any way, um, being able to think about how we can support and practically support disadvantaged children to achieve educationally. It's great for them, it's great for the country, but it also is terrific for us. Well, I think you've given us a, a flavour, Anne, of why uh, the University of Melbourne, we're, we're honoured ourselves to be able to partner with the Smith family and have such... Um, genuine admiration and respect for the for the work that uh, the organisation has been doing and their commitment to um, building research in this area along with advocacy and policy. So my guest today is Anne Hampshire, Head of Research and Advocacy at the Smith Family. We've been talking about the Let's Count program and more information can be found on their website, www.thesmithfamily.com.au. It's been a real pleasure to have uh, be speaking with you today, Anne, and thank you very much. I've so enjoyed the conversation, Julie. Thank you. Thank you. All Being Equal is recorded at the Horwood Recording Studios, University of Melbourne. Gary Dixon is our producer and Gavin Neighbour is our audio engineer. Subscribe on iTunes to make sure you never miss an episode. I'm Julia McLeod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>